Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. Today I'm talking to a childhood hero of mine. Now I remember growing up as a kid in the 90s and watching all the wildlife programs on Animal Planet and two people really stood out to me, the late great Steve Irwin and today's guest Mark O'Shea who hosted O'Shea's Big Adventure where he'd go around the world catching dangerous reptiles to collect data, venom and help people understand them. Now he's taken up the role of Professor of Herpetology at the University of Wolverhampton and previous to that he was working with reptiles at the West Midlands Safari Park for 33 years, not to mention all the other TV work that he's done. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at TitBearded and there's now a Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. We talk about his fascination with snakes, what it's like to be bitten by a venomous snake and how O'Shea's big adventure started. Here's our chat. Well, Mark, thanks for joining me. You're very welcome. It's nice to see you again after so long, Jack. It's been a while, hasn't it? It must be a good seven years, maybe, or longer than that. Yeah, I think it was, yes. Up in Nottingham, doing uh, BBC Inside Out. That was yeah. it. Mark was presenting a piece on, I think it was called Urban Jungle, and it was like a wildlife photography competition, not just local telly. But that's how we first first met. It was a good little couple of days, actually. I quite it was, yes. Yeah, and you introduced me to my first bullhead. I mean, I'm, I'm a keen angler and I hadn't seen a Had you never seen before. one before? No, no, I hadn't. I, I, I've caught Daddy Ruff and things like that. And I remember them from my childhood, fishing down on the Seven in the winter and catching little Daddy Ruff like tiny perch. Yeah. But yeah, that was my first bullhead, you see. So I was really pleased to see that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. But obviously it's not fisher associated with it. It's reptile. So... What What is it about snakes that fascinates you? Because I think of all the reptiles, it's fair to say snakes are your favourite. Yes, it's, it is fair to say that. And I do more work on snakes than, than anything else. Although, obviously, I have worked on other herpetologists. You do, and, and certainly when I was doing TV, you, you, you do work on everything. And if you're doing herpetological surveys, you are looking at everything. But it is snakes that is my, my particular area. And I don't know, I'd have to go right back to when I was six or seven or eight. And I've, I think possibly one of the reasons I like snakes was because nobody else seemed to. I, I remember when I was at school in the playground and I asked a girl if she, if she liked the Beatles and she said she did. So I gave her a matchbox with one in it. And um, <laughs> I just... Smooth, smooth mark. Yeah, yeah, very, yeah. But I think it probably was the initial thing was that other people didn't like them. So I started to try and find out about them. And the more I found out, the more I wanted to know. And it sort of just grew from there into, into a hobby and ultimately into a career. And it has been what has employed me. You know, it's been my total um, life. Um, you know, I'm in my 60s now and I've been completely involved in herpetology all the way through. Did you keep snakes from an early age or did that come later? I did. Yes, I did. I met my first snake in Ireland. Now, that oh, might right. surprise you. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
you'll start to get a clue when I tell you it was a boa constrictor. Okay, right, yeah. And it was at Dublin Zoo. And as we were going into Dublin Zoo, into the, we were having a family holiday in the early to mid-60s. And as we went into the reptile house, my mother, my brother, uh, and myself, I think my father was there because he took some pictures when we came out. And as we were going in, this woman with children in tow said to my mother, if you ask the keeper, you'll take a snake out for your boys. And so my mother asked and the keeper opened one of these front access cages, which you wouldn't see in collections now. It's quite rare to have front access cages because it's all supposed to be back access because it's all security and you don't want people breaking in or, you know, unlock, being able to unlock it. Um, but anyway, took out this bow constrictor and put it over my shoulders and it seemed to be twice as long as I was tall. It, it might have been actually because I wasn't very tall. And that was absolutely magic. And it was my first meeting with a snake. And, and I was really pleased because my mother thought she'd met a snake prior to that. A child had brought a rubber snake to school and handed it to her to hold and she'd held it and it had moved. And it was a slow worm, which we all know, of course, are legless lizards, but it was the child's pet. So my mother had actually touched a reptile before me. This was my first snake, but this belonged to the zoo. About a year later, I was off school sick. And the day before I was due to go back, my aunt said, look, I'll take you out to the countryside to get some fresh air into your lungs, get you ready for going back to school. Where do you want to go? And I said, Kinver Edge, which is local to us. It's on the Staffs, which is the border. And it had an adder colony. And we used to go there every weekend. We still has. We used to go there every weekend, family with the dog. And I always hoped, lived in hope of seeing a snake. And, and never did. If you're walking with the dog, you don't, because the dog goes ahead of you, dog goes behind you. You know, it basically it creates snake-free zone. Anyway, I went there with my aunt and we're walking along. It's a scarp dip, a scarp, it's like that. We're walking on the low, lower edge in the forest. It's a lovely sunny day. It's early, early morning. And my aunt said, there aren't any snakes here, are there? Because she was wearing sandals and had probably just thought, Mm, snakes, sandals, yeah. not a good combination. And I said, well, there are, but we've never seen one. And then on cue, I heard, <laughs> I heard a sound I'd never heard before, but immediately knew what it was. It was a crackling sound. And it wasn't the pitter patter of a lizard or a mouse or a bird. It was a continuous crackling sound of something with no limbs at all gliding over dead bracken. So I said, stop, 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 stop. And we stood still and I looked towards the sound and into view came this beautiful male adder, gray with a black zigzag, black suturing on his, on his lip scales, beautiful red eye, vertical pupil, and he just came out. And I'm absolutely mesmerized. And then I broke the spell and said, quick, catch it. And we both dropped to the ground to try and catch it. <laughs> Without considering the really important aspects of this are why, how, what with, yeah. uh, you know, which are the, really the considerations. Yeah. The snake gave us a slip. We never saw it again. But the zoo one belonged to the zoo. This one, this was a wild snake. And to my immature mind back then, this was fair game. I wanted a snake. I did buy an Italian grass snake from a pet shop. And I called her escapist because she did. 
<laughs> frequently all over the house. I'd have to stay off school, prizing up floorboards to try and find her and things like that. Behind, underneath the boiler in the kitchen, behind the the what's the name in the the water tank in the in the you know just everywhere. It's always because they are the world's greatest escape artists. So that was my first snake, and from that I did build up quite a collection. And by the the early eighties. I'd got about 200 snakes in the house, which I was breeding some of them. And it was a good collection, yeah. But um, I've moved beyond that. I don't keep anything, I haven't done for decades. Partly because I, I, I was curator of reptiles at Safari Park, West Midland Safari Park for 33 years. And when you've been cleaning out snakes all day, you don't want to go home and start doing it. <laughs> no, a bit of a busman's holiday. Yeah, it is really, isn't it? And and the point is that I got interesting species, which I felt would be better on display there. So I moved my collection in and out of the house and into there. And that was a much more sensible thing because I was there and I was tending for, I was being paid to look after my own snakes. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and feed them and heat them and everything else. So it was, I mean, what's not to like? Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it, I, I, because I travel an awful lot, obviously not at the moment. I think 2020 was the first year I've not been overseas for, well, a very long time. We're not traveling at the moment, but because I generally am traveling four or five times a year, if you've got animals, if you keep pets, you have a responsibility to care for them. Yeah. And um, you, you, you can't just be leaving them disappearing. So, so it's an impracticality. And so I haven't kept it. I've, to be honest, I've, I've come, I've gone through that. I've come out the other side and I've seen some fun. I much rather now work on them in the wild and find new species and things like that. I don't regret it. Sometimes I think, oh, I rather fancy keeping that. So, yeah, I, I don't keep them now. No. Well, it's clear to see that you're obviously very passionate about them. But have you got a, a, a fact that you find most interesting about snakes? Is there one? I mean, oh, I'm, I'm sure you've got lots of facts, but is there one thing you like? That facts is about snakes. One thing that's probably quite interesting is is the fact that well, there's a couple of things i'd say here if you were inventing a game called evolution right and everybody had to go away and design an animal right and then come back and see how they pitted against each other okay the people who, in, who came back with a tiger with its speed and its power and its teeth and its claws or an elephant with its sheer invulnerability and things like that they pick good animals the guy who comes back with the snake here he's got an animal that has got no arms and legs uh, has to crawl on the ground um some have good eyesight but an awful lot don't have good eyesight has no ears detects sound through vibrations does have some pretty clever senses like heat sensitive pits and forked tongues but but the snake you would think well, how's that going to do against all these big, heavy, fierce animals? But it does remarkably well. You know, there are over 3,800 species. You know, they've, they've done remarkably well. They have, they're one of the most successful groups of vertebrates. And they have an impact on us. Because snakes have found their way into the cultures, mythology, the history, the public health, and a lot of other aspects of virtually every human group with which they share common ground. There, you, 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 the Aborigines have got um, the, the dream serpent. Okay. The, the, the Aztecs had uh, 
the wing, wing serpent. The, the, the Indians, uh, the Hindus, the, the cobra is important in, in Hinduism. The, in, in Buddhism, it, the cobra sheltered Buddha from the rain. Yeah, um, the, the Bible, um, obviously, haven't you? The, the snake. The Bible, the Bible, the Bible's one where in most cultures, they're not treated as bad. Oh, okay. okay. Cristiano Judaism, the snake is is reviled and right. on my belly thou shalt crawl and all that. So the, the Christianity doesn't do the snake a lot of favours. Oh. Although Abraham had a staff that he turned into a snake and he turned all the snakes that everybody else's staffs had turned into. But they do they do keep reoccurring. That's probably a cobra. Cleopatra's ass was likely an Egyptian cobra, which I know very well because I've been bitten by one of those as well. They're everywhere. The Hopi Indians in, in um, Arizona used to have a snake dance which, which, where they danced with rattlesnakes. It, it, it goes back a very long way. People have lived alongside snakes and snakes have lived alongside people for a long time. And they've obviously impacted on one another. Well, it's interesting how you, you, you kind of use that analogy of all those big animals, but it's amazing how most of those big animals have, uh, whether you'd call it a fear or a healthy respect, like if you put a plastic oh, snake yeah. into an enclosure, I think they did an experiment at Monkey World in Dorset and they yeah. put some plastic snakes with the chimps. And I don't know if they'd ever seen a snake before, but they just knew to stay away from it. So a lot oh, of animals... Right. Yes, indeed, indeed. In fact, I think humans, a baby will crawl up to a snake, whereas a baby chimp will crawl away. Yeah. You know, um, baby human won't. But yes, it's a survival instinct. And of course, most snakes are not dangerous, but it's the ability to tell them apart. That's, yeah. that's, that's the important thing. Yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> this backfires on snakes because people kill every snake on site, whereas a lot of them are very beneficial. Rats are a big problem in the rice crops in Sri Lanka and in India. And you can actually, you can see the, right, the rat damage in the rice crop. It's like crop circles. It's that much. Really? Uh, yeah. And the snakes are actually keeping, they are nature's rat traps and they're keeping the rats down. Uh, cobras and Russell's vipers, they're going through snakes every night. Of course, they are biting people and they are killing people. But so, so does starvation um, and, and disease because the rats are also urinating on the grain in, in the grain houses. So you've got leptospirosis, you know, wheel disease and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, if there's, if there's a snake living in there, it's keeping them down. So they, they, they do perform an important purpose. Uh, not that I feel that snakes have to justify themselves to, to, as, a, as a useful animal for humans to exist. Not at all, not at all. But there, there are benefits from, and certainly for farmers in the US, um, they used to leave the king snakes alone. They recognized king snakes, they didn't kill them because king snakes eat rattlesnakes. Ah, okay. They're immune to the venom and they're non-venomous themselves. So they, they were seen as good snakes to have around. Right, okay. You know? Well, I mean, it's funny you mention that, but I wanted to ask you, because I know you've had a few uh, close calls with snakes over the years, with venomous snakes, I should add. And obviously most people listening to this have, have probably not been bitten by a venomous snake. So I wondered what what's it like, because it is something that most people won't experience i mean is it similar to being ill or is it just its whole its whole own thing i mean it's probably not very nice very, to revisit very very much depends on the type of snake and the venom okay. so well what about some of the ones because i think you've had a few few bites haven't uh, you uh, but... yeah yeah i've had i've had a few i've had i've had two or three that were extremely serious i mean i've been i've been hospitalized for nine days on occasion 
Yeah. I've been medi- I've been medevaced out of the out of New Mexico, medevaced out of the Amazon. I could have been medevaced out of Indonesia to a hospital. I, di- I, I, di- I didn't go. I said no, it wasn't bad enough. Yeah, I mean, it really depends where the bite occurs. Um, okay. Bites that occur in captivity in the UK, which I've had, you've usually got you've got the facilities of the marvellous NHS and people pull out the plugs and, you know, they, they, they will get you there and if the, the antivenom should be available and you should survive. There has only been one exotic snake fatality, well, two actually. The, fir- the first one was in 1865, I think, and it was the curator of reptiles at London Zoo, kissed a cobra, came into work drunk, kissed a cobra, kissed him back, and he was dead an hour after the zoo opened, but that was 1865. And then my my good friend, Luke Yeomans, who's a, a Nottinghamshire lad, oh, okay. um, he, he died from a king cobra bite. Um, I think I remember the story, yeah. I do remember that. Uh, very, very good friend of mine. And um, I was actually in Timor, and his daughter phoned me up to yeah. tell me. That was the first call she made. She didn't know I was in Timor on the other side of the world. I think she wanted me to come up and sort of deal with, you know, deal with the king cobras. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I don't know, because when I said, look, I'm, I'm, I'm on the other side of the world, she rang off and got on somebody else. But yeah, Luke, very sad. But um, two exotic deaths. And yet there are a lot of bites in, in captivity in the, well, not, there's a few bites in captivity. Yeah, yeah they happen from time to time. In, in zoos, in private collections. Yeah. So, you know, that's what, um, 100 and how many years since 1860? Working out a long time since I did maths. Um, two fatalities and even adders in this country um in the whole of the 20th century there were only 12 fatalities from adder bites in the uk at the moment probably about 60 to 80 people get bitten by adders every year mostly young lads mostly on the hand or arm rarely girls and it's normally although there was a serious bite to a girl and she was very very ill um but it's normally lads um, picking them up. Yeah. I mean, I, um, the last death was in 1975, and I was bitten two weeks later doing a, a reptile show, um, East, big East of England show at the, out of Peterborough, and I got bitten by an adder demonstrating the differences between grass snakes and adders. I hadn't planned to demonstrate that particular difference, but there we go. And um, they were very worried because, you know, it's still news that somebody yeah, died in Scotland from yeah. adder bites. And two weeks later, I got tagged but i knew i was going to be fine you know and i turned down most of what they wanted to do to me but uh how's it feel is what you asked me yeah yeah um when the bite initially occurs i mean i can see some of my previous bites in slow motion yeah and in actual fact when i see them it sends a cold shudder down my back initially it's the surprise that you think you've been bitten because of what the snake is now doing. Like one rattlesnake was sat back, yawning, resetting its fangs. So I knew it had bitten me because it had struck across my field of vision very fast, so fast defeats the eye. I didn't see it strike. So the bit bite me in the itself wrist. isn't that painful? Not to start with. No, no. Not to start with. It's not like if you're stung by a bee or by a scorpion, and I've had a number of scorpion stings around the world. It's <laughs> not much look, ins- Mark, have you? I <laughs> know oh, I have, I, I, but well, I, I deal with so many here. venomous animals. Yeah. You know, I mean, I am, you know, what I've done a lot of work, 
work um, catching um, venomous animals yeah. for their venom. And occasionally, I mean, I mean, I was stung in my sleeping bag in in, in Brazil in in a in, a, in, the middle, in the night in the Amazon, stung in the foot bus, and I knew what it was. It was a scorpion. I knew what it was, but I didn't want to find it in the dark, so I slept at the top of the sleeping bag and left him down the bottom. And in the morning, woke up, thought scorpion, got up, shook it out, caught it, preserved it, gave it to the scorpion guy. When when uh, three days later we got back to base camp, and he said, "This is genus Titius," and I said, "Well, it stung me." He says. Yeah. I said, but they're really dangerous. He said, yeah. <laughs> they kill lots of people in Brazil. Oh, but, he didn't. God. It, but anyway, you get, get, just going back. Um, initially, you. I'm thinking to the bike when I got struck, it struck across my field of vision. I looked at my wrist. Nothing there. Turn my wrist over and I could see like um, a C, the teeth of the lower jaw. OK. Now, when I've. When a snake bites, the fangs go in, the lower jaw completes the bite, then it lets go. It all happens in a blink, well, less than a blink. But that, that, that row of teeth was there, so they could not be there without the upper jaw going in first. So I turned my wrist back over, and then I saw the two blood spots coming up about an inch apart. I mean, it was, it was a big rattlesnake. It was fatter than my arm, it was, and it was a prey-taking bite because I was feeding them. And, it, and um, um, no pain. No. Not, not not initially but then it starts and it starts like something a long way off just a nagging ache and then it just gets more more and more and more and more and more intense and from that bite i spent three nights on pethidin okay because the pain was so bad funnily enough it was at night it was really bad and not during the day, but I just could not, I, I, I couldn't lie in the same position. I was in so much pain. But the thing was that the pain wasn't in the bitten arm. Right. I couldn't feel the bitten arm. The pain was in the unbitten arm. It was referred. It was oh, so right. weird. Yeah. I had a lot of weird things with that because I remember watching myself being carried out of the ambulance from above. <laughs> so it's almost hallucinogenic, do you think? Um, I, was, I had an out-of-body experience, as simple as that. Yeah. I watched I watched myself being carried past the, the police outriders who'd closed all the, between the safari park and, and um, um, Dudley Road Hospital poisons unit. They It was it was a bank holiday, sat the police are fantastic. They're outriders, they, they'd closed off every single set of lights, every junction. They were either, um, it was either um, three or four pairs of Outriders, and they and and all the way there, all I could see was occasionally blue going past because I'd got no vision, right. like a television with no aerial. Occasionally, I'd see, and I, I'd lost the ability to speak, almost lost the ability to breathe. Um, I was in a very bad way, and I knew if I went to sleep, I'd never wake up. So, so I I started thinking, well, I've got to keep myself awake, and the way I do that is a memory test. That you know, um, states of the United States, can you do more? Well, I yeah. can. Well, I didn't do that one. It was the it was the species of rattlesnakes in Latin. There were Thirty-two <laughs> species recognised at that time, and I will get to twenty-nine with ease. <laughs> in Latin, and then I'll struggle on the last three, and I'll go. I'm sure there's another one that begins with T, and that's that got me there. But so, I remember being carried out on the gurney, and my parents were there. My mother touched me on the cheek because that, that she'd been informed. They'd been informed, but. Um, the police were stood in line I'd, I'd, and they watched me go past and it was just 
It was so weird. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and they thought I was in a coma when I got on the ward. And um, they moved me onto the ITU pretty quickly. But when I came back down off the ITU, nurse said, oh, you're looking a lot better now. You, when you came in, you were in a coma. I said, no, no, I wasn't. She said, you were. She said, we're. I said, no. I said, I heard everything you said. Yeah. I said, she said, what do you mean? I said, you said, Mandy, I know you shouldn't, but help me undress Mark. <laughs> and she stepped straight. Now, you see, I could only have known that from being there. Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, there was, um, I'd been on that ward previously for a bite. And I knew that it was a regular person there who was often in for for poisonings and um she wasn't a member of staff but they were so pushed that she asked her to help right address me and yeah you know i heard everything and i used to work in an accident emergency department i spent probably five or six years working in accident emergency dealing with people who were seriously injured and dying and very important thing when you're working in that environment and the people who are fighting for our COVID patients now will know this is the fact that that if you might think somebody can't hear you but they often can the yeah. last thing you lose is your hearing and that you always treat people with respect and you 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 you're not fatalistic when you're around them and things like that no um it's it's quite important because because that does filter in yeah you don't want to want them to give heard, up. they thought I, remember, I heard everything that was said about me and to me yeah, Bonkers. but it was a bad bite. It was a bad bite. Yeah. 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 So how? Well, because what most people, or what a lot of people, will, will know you from, of course, is the the TV show back in the the late nineties, O'Shea's Big Adventure. Adventure, so, yeah. How, how did you go from you know being a well, you still are a herpetologist, obviously, but being a herpetologist to being a kind of travelling around the world? <clears> uh, yeah, it was it was by accident, as a lot oh. of these things are. You know, basically, yeah. we're country file. Uh, my partner used to work on control. You know, it's been in the right place, knowing the right people. Now, I'll tell you how it happened. Um, being at Safari Park with an interesting and very diverse collection of reptiles, the various natural history film units, mostly in Bristol, some of them in London, they used to phone me up when they were doing a TV series and they would go, uh, they'd ask me to come down, bring down some spitting cobras or... Um, crocodile or something to, for for i mean i've worked on an awful lot of documentary blue chip documentaries where the animal is front of stage and it might be presented by sir david attenborough or it might be presented by somebody else but it's the story of an animal we did we did like um um the life of a uh rattlesnake and they filmed rattlesnakes in arizona of different age. they were telling the story of a rattlesnake growing up well obviously um they didn't take 20 to 30 years they had rattlesnakes of different ages playing yeah. the rattlesnake in the yeah. same way if you do a documentary about charles darwin's life you'll have four or five actors at different ages so and some of the stuff they wanted was inside a, a den because they got the rattlesnakes going into the den but you couldn't uh, film in a den in arizona um it would be completely unethical because you opening up a den you'd be altering its entire in, um uh, ecology uh doing a lot of damage plus shoving a cameraman in a den would be <laughs> a bit of a death a su suicidal that would be yeah so what we did we built a den in bristol 
Okay. And I brought in Western Diamondback rattlesnakes and other, a couple of other species, Mojaves and, and Blacktails that, that live with them and a couple of other species because there's sometimes other species in the den. And, I, and so they'd got all their external shots. And so we built the den and we had snakes coming in and we filmed all the interiors and all of that in, in, in Bristol. And when, when BBC made new, uh, Natural World about um, New Guinea and Island Apart, two-parter, I took two weeks out of working on a snake bite in New Guinea. I was there for seven months. Took two weeks out um, to build sets with the cameraman and bring in some interesting reptiles that I'd caught they'd like to film do that and 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 then break that set down and do another one because an awful lot of that stuff's done on, on has to be done on sets obviously so i was pretty well known for all of that and when we're sitting down having a coffee they go they say things like well where have you been recently mark and i say oh, i'll just come back from so and so you know west africa or wherever oh man that must be really interesting you know it'd be great to have a, a film crew follow you around i said wouldn't it yes it'd be great bit like David Attenborough's starting with, you know, with, with his series, Zoo yeah. Quests, which I watched. Yeah. Um, I'm old enough to have watched them. Um, so, yeah, that's a great, oh, well, I think we'll put a treatment together and see if we can get it passed, you know, see if we can get a commission. They never did. I never heard any more. Um, and then I had a, a uh, producer come to see me she, uh, at the safari park and on a lovely summer's day and she said i want to talk to you about giant snakes and i said well what do you want to talk about the heaviest or the longest snake in the world because they're different species longest snake in the world's a reticulated python heaviest snake in the world's a green anaconda she said well i like the sound of green anaconda and um, we had some in the collection so she was able to see we've got both species in the collection so she's able to see them and she said look where could we go to find and film them. And I said, well, as it happens, I've got a friend who's got a big ranch in Venezuela, in the Llanos. And only a couple of weeks ago, he said, why don't you come over, Mark? And, um, and you know, we'll catch some anacondas. And I'd written back and said, I'd love to, but I can't afford it, you know? Um, and I said, well, you know, we could go there. And they got in contact with him. And a few weeks later, I flew out. Film crew came out. And um, I caught them 32 anacondas <laughs> um, up to um, 18 feet long and 11 and a half stone, Jeez. which is heavier than me. And so that went down so well. That was for us. Oh, I can't remember the name of the series now, but that went down so well. That was with Yorkshire Television. And they said, look, we're going to put a commission in. We're going to try and get a commission from for BB from Channel 4 for their To the Ends of the Earth series. And To the Ends of the Earth, the, this was the second series. They have either six or eight unrelated stories out in the wilds, like trekking across the Arctic or something. And they said, have you got an idea? Well, I said, well, we could go to South Africa and catch black mambas and see if there's any variation in their venom. Right. Like, like the sound of that, we'll see if we can get that one across. While they were planning that, I had two of the other production companies that were submitting um, films for um, the same series contact me and say, would you do a film on Komodo dragons with us? Would you do a another film on anacondas with us? <laughs> and I said, well, I can't. You know, I'll stick with who I'm with, but 
they're supposed to be six or eight unrelated films. You can't have the same bloke pop you're, up in three of them. You have to <laughs> wear a fake nose, Mark, or wear yeah, a that's, different hat. I'd get, get away with that, wouldn't I? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My accent would probably give me away. Uh, maybe. So, so we went out, we made Black Mamba, and that was so well received that they said, um, they'd now been talking to Discovery, and they said, we'd like to offer you a six-part series, six half hours. So I planned... Um, um, six films, two in Brazil, one in Argentina, and three in the US. And this was going to be O'Shea's Big Adventure, which Channel 4 also ran, but they called it O'Shea's Dangerous Reptiles. And we were, we'd been sending back the rushes, sending back what we'd done, and um, we were on, on the final shoot. And we got a phone call to say that they're all so pleased with what they'd got, they wanted to increase it to 13. So we made 13, that was in 1999 and we made 13 films in the Americas. Um, and then they commissioned another series. So I made 13 half hour films in Australia, New Guinea, um, the Pacific. Then they went to half hour, uh, one hour specials. So I did four films in Asia and then they did another four and that was mostly in Africa and then back to Peru for Anacondas. So that's where, and that pretty much occupied me from 1999 to 2003 I was overseas at least 200 days a year when I was back I was I was only dropping into the safari park so I'd say hello I was the safari park were great they kept my job open yeah which is which is you know because a lot of people might not have done that so it's quite good no, they're fun I mean what, what I had with the safari park was very symbiotic that's a good biological word for you we it worked really well for both of us because I was on TV, so that was good for them. And I had a job when I needed one. And, you know, when I came back from that, I, I was there. And then um, I went back to Safari Park after we'd finished Big Adventure. And then I made a couple of episodes in the second season of Safari Park, which was for Central TV. Um, and I did a film actually in our new Marco O'Shea's Reptile World, which was all species that I'd sort of studied or worked on and, and, and things like that. Um, and then we did a then we did a film out in um, Namibia on a game park, and th so that one was that was, and uh, they were about two thousand and five, I think. Yeah. So yeah, and occasionally I get asked to do bits and pieces. I'd I'd do it again, yeah. and I'd do it better, but um, probably not quite so intense. Um, two hundred days overseas a year. I mean, it was so weird. We we we'd be going. What country are we in? You forget <laughs> what are we in, and it was so funny because you're changing currencies all the time. Yeah, I bet. And one of my cameramen, Des, he had a he had a solution to that. Um, there were only three currencies in the world: pound sterling, U.S. dollars, and shitters. <laughs> and wherever we were, if it wasn't the U.S., he'd say, "How many shitters is that?" Because <laughs> it, it was keeping up. Because we're being moved around, crossing borders, this and and he's, how many, and you, and you you go well, what 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 kind of, what currency are you in? No, <laughs> it was, but yeah. it was great days, great days. Because yeah. part of the show, from what I remember, obviously part of it was you'd because you're obviously a keen photographer as well, so you'd take pictures of some of the some of the subjects, yes. but you'd you'd also collect venom uh, as part. Yeah, of the show, where it was needed, tissue samples sometimes. Yes, and with venom then. What I mean, obviously, you make anti-venom, but are there any other properties? Because we always talk about these. Yeah, things. you don't. If you're just collecting a sample of venom, you're not making anti-venom. 
No. You need to okay. maintain the snake and take regular venom from it to do that. What you're doing with venom samples, um, for instance, when I was working in New Guinea, um, up in New Guinea in the 90s, um, I was catching and milking venomous snakes, sending the venom back to the Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine, drying it and sending it back. And they were getting serum samples from snake bite victims in hospitals prior to any medication. And what they were doing was working out what was biting people. Right. By, it's a bit like chromatography or proving parenthood. You know, people are more familiar with the banding of DNA and things like that. And one of the species I got to look at was a small-eyed snake on Karkar Island off New Guinea. And, and uh, people die there of snake bites. But we, ha we had no proof that the small-eyed snake, we, it was potentially dangerous, but nobody had ever collected any venom before. Right. Um, and so I went there and I, I caught three of my first trip, my first visit to the island from the mainland. And on that whole expedition, I got 15 and I milked them and all the venom went back to Liverpool. And it was compared with serum samples from snake bite victims from Carker Island in the, 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 the house sick there, the little clinic. And some of the fatalities were confirmed. They banded out as micropeches, which we didn't know. We suspected, but we hadn't the proof. And that's the point. In science, you want proof. You don't, you don't guess. No. You need the proof. And that proved that that was a medically important species. So some of the work you were doing, then, it's fair to say is pioneering, then. You're, you're discovering a lot of stuff. Yes, indeed. I mean, you know, I, I, I got an MBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours uh, list la um, last year. Um, and that was for further education, zoology, reptile conservation, and importantly, snake bite research, because I've spent a lot of time uh, in, in I've, I've worked on snake bite in, in Sri Lanka, in, in Papua New Guinea. And more recently, I was in Myanmar in 2018. And basically, I was, they've got a, a, a unit there where they keep a lot of highly venomous snakes. And they, want, they wanted Russell's vipers and cobras and pit vipers. And they wanted the new species. It's only it's only been described about eight ten years. Um, the um, Burmese spitting cobra. They wanted those as well from the man up by Mandalay. It's okay. one of those places you've heard and you can't place, like Timbuktu. They do exist. <laughs> and so I was up around Mandalay um, gathering in venomous snakes to take back to the the um, the labs that they got down near Yangon. So yes, it's and. It, it, it's, it's very satisfying because I love doing what I do. I'm a biologist. I work on animals, but I'm in the fortunate position of being able to, some of my work actually helps humanity. Yeah. And so I've become quite an advocate for snake bite. You know, you, definitely everybody should watch the video minutes to die. And you can find it easily on, I'm, I'm not in, but I've been promoting it. I've shown it at places to raise money. Minister Die, it's on the internet. And it's a superb documentary about snake bite. Because, okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic and a lot of, uh, 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 more people are dying, excess deaths and, than um, any time since World War II. That's not the norm. That's not what we normally have. So it's very hard to talk about something that kills people other than COVID at the moment. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but in a normal year, um, up to 138,000 people die of snake bite every year. Really? Um, 400,000 are permanently physically disabled, losing limbs uh, and, and things like that. Um, that's, that's, um, that's at least 10, possibly 20 times as many lose limbs to landmines. 
Um, then they're all the ones that are mentally scarred by their experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they're all the poor families that are shoved even further into penury because they've, they've, they've had to sell their goats and chickens to pay for the treatment of their family member who may come back not as they remember them. Um, and often it's the breadwinner. So, um, you know, snakebite is, is a terrible scourge. And, and now the WHO are recognizing um, the importance of doing something about snakebite. And they want to halve the mortality um, by 50% by 2030. I take my hat off to them, do it. Um, you know, we need more antivenoms. But unfortunately, a lot of the Western countries like Beringwerk in Germany and Pasteur Institute in France um, pulled out of producing antivenoms. And the antivenom heroes now are the Costa Ricans. Right. They produce antivenom not just for Costa Rica, not just for Central and South America. They produce it for Africa. They produce it for New Guinea. They produce it for South Asia. And it's not um, a um, private lab. It's a private pharmaceutical company. It's uh, the Institute of Clodomero Picado at the University of San Jose in, in Costa Rica. It's a university department. Wow. And um, I, you know, I salute them for what they're doing. For, this, is, this is Costa Rica, a little country in Central America. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to save people on the other side of the planet. Well yeah. played. Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree, uh, couldn't agree more. With, you know, you mentioned you're going abroad you know, 200 times a year, you've been to kind of a lot of, of countries. Not going abroad 200 times a year. I, how many passports <laughs> would I need for that? I, I was away 200 days a year, yes. Days, sorry. Sorry, yeah, days. Yes. Oh, yes. Gosh. Not, uh, I couldn't, obviously, I went 200 times. I obviously don't like where I'm going because I'm going straight back to go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, go oh. on. Um, was there any species that eluded you? Because obviously you're trying to oh, God, yes. these hard species. So was, was there a yes. magic for you? No, yes, there was. Um, you see, this was when I made Big Adventure. I'm, I'm coming from a, a fieldwork background. I've been working in the tropics since the early 80s. And I know what it's like to have fruitless days looking for something. Um, but when, t when TV comes along and wants to make a documentary, which is expensive, they want a success at the end. Yeah. And they want you to find the species that you're looking for. And um, I knew there was a potential for that. And so I said that the golden rule of O'Shea's big adventure was no setups. Okay. If I'm meeting somebody, we might shoot that two or three times from different angles because you've got to do the cutaways and the shaking yes. of hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're in TV, you, you know yeah. what I'm talking about. But when it came to the actual capture of something, I was not going to do it with a hired in animal. Right. We'd hired from a, um, a private keeper or had people out to catch. Well, there was one occasion I was looking for Burmese pythons in a Sam. And this guy um, came along and he said he'd found one. And um, it was in a bush. I don't know how he'd seen it. And we went over there and um, there was something about it. I was pretty sure it was his snake and he'd set it up and he wanted to be in the film and right. he'd set this snake up. And I said to the director, this, this is staged. I, I'm, this is not genuine. I'm not going to catch this one. Um, and there was another, I, I wouldn't even reshoot a capture. We were in Orissa. Let's change his name now. The state it's in, 
it's in the Bitikarnika swamps in um, northeast India. And what was that film? I was looking for king cobras there. But we only caught one snake in the swamp. And basically, it's mangrove mud. It's, it's like, imagine the softest toffee, <laughs> um, four feet deep, and trying to go across a field of it. Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible. Um, and we're in the mangrove mud, and I saw a snake, which I knew. I could see it sitting by the hole. There was a mud skipper hole in the mud and this snake sitting at the entrance and I knew what it was, the dog, uh, dog tooth water snake. And it was waiting for the mud skipper to come out and to catch it. And I said, this is really interesting. So I got the cameraman and the sound recorders and we're going across and I caught the snake and I turned around. I did a piece to camera to the cameraman and sound recorders who are, who are really good. They're always running. Um, they don't walk around with the gear, not running. Right. Because they don't know when I'm going to go. Very right, off yeah. we go. You've got to, you know, it's it's because we're not going right. Okay, is everybody okay? Right, we'll run over there now. No, I need you to go for that. And I caught the snake. I turned around. I talked about dog tooth cat snake. I talked about the fact it was a rear fang venomous snake. They were found all the way through um, the um, archipelago, all the way down to Australia. And I said what he did, what he was doing. Um, it was it eats mudskippers and it sits in ambush and so forth. And the cameraman goes, "He got it, got it, got it." And the sound recorders went, the mangrove swamp trees form a canopy. And somewhere above that, the only aeroplane in the whole region <laughs> circling like it was dropping skydivers. The bane of the sound man. <laughs> so the, we hadn't heard it because we're concentrating. Sound recorders got it. Now, ordinarily, you'd get a shot of it. And you could use the footage because then, but otherwise people go, what's that sound? What's that sound? Yeah. And you just don't use footage. If there's a dog that won't stop barking. I mean, I had three dogs following me around all the time in when I was in Lake Tanganyika filming in, in Zambia. And the only thing we could do was include them in the film as my assistants <laughs> because I believe it's alone. If you've got some extraneous sound, you yeah, need to get some footage of it. Yeah. Otherwise you can't use it. And we couldn't use the footage. And they didn't even ask me to do it again because they knew I wasn't going to. Yeah. But, that's, but there was there was no species that eluded you then. then. There was no one yes. that you were like that. Was oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, one that eluded me in New Guinea, and I've been there from twice, is Salvador's monitor lizard. It's, a, it's, it's longer than a Komodo dragon, but much more slimly built. It lives in trees. Ah, OK. Um, and uh, we spent a lot of time. We built traps to try and catch them alive. We baited it and all sorts. We're, we trekked all over Western Province looking for them in a really good area. They are really elusive. Um, and I'll tell you, New Guinea is the second largest island in the world after Greenland. And in museum collections around the world, there are 24 specimens of this lizard that have been actually taken from the wild as museum vouchers. They're found and they're, the, the locations are across the entire island of New Guinea, right. mostly in the coastal area. So it's, 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 it's widely distributed. So really it's, see, really it's cool. not that it's rare, it's just it's very elusive. It just keeps Yeah, people think something's rare. Yeah, people go, yeah. I mean, there's quite a few species that people have thought, well, not there's a few species people thought of extinct, and yet they've cropped up again, like uh, Krapan, Krapani's boa in in um, in the Atlantic coastal forests of Brazil. Two specimens collected in 1953. I visited those specimens and filmed with them in the Institute of Butantan in Sao Paulo. Butantan burned down in, I think, 2010. All the specimens are gone. 95% of the Atlantic coastal forests are gone, more than the Amazon, um, and that snake was thought to be extinct. And then 2017, I think, they found an adult 
and the Brazilians are radio tracking it. Yeah. So there are a few species. They call them Lazarus species. Yeah, it's and they come that. back from the brink. But yes, I mean, there's been there's been a few. I mean, <clears throat> I fell I failed to find what I was looking for. And about one in five of the Osho's big adventures. But when I didn't get that monitor lizard, I caught a little python that puzzled me. What was it? Because I wrote the book on the snakes of New Guinea and it's not in it. Right. And I had to go <laughs> to try, okay, it's python. So I had to work. Yeah, I had to work. I wrote the field guide in 96. I'm rewriting. There's a massive tome going to be. And I went th through my knowledge, went through the keys, and it came out as a genus that's only known from Australia. This was the first specimen outside of Australia, up in southern New Guinea. Right. So although I didn't find the monitor lizard, I found this python, which we, I mean, we've published scientific papers out of a bunch of my films on spitting cobras and um, uh, sleeping behavior in reticulated pythons, scape behavior in reticulated pythons, bunch of things. Uh, the northern north, northeasternmost uh, reticulated python, almost as far north on a tiny island south of Taiwan, things like that. And this, I published this Python. Um, if we'd found a monitor lizard, <clears throat> that was a half hour film. I'm pretty sure the Python would have ended up on the cutting room floor. So I was glad we didn't get the lizard. Yeah, so it worked out uh, worked out in, in the end for you. Well, yes. I'm, I'm gonna end on this, uh, this last question. I'm sure you must get asked this all the time and it's probably an impossible, possible task, but have you got a favorite reptile? And if you have, why? Okay, I've got several. Favorite snake. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> favorite snake is um, king cobra. Okay. And it's not because it's the longest venomous snake in the world. It's because there's something going on behind those eyes. And I had my king cobra. And if you go to my website, we, we had an operation done by um, a Spanish vet I brought in because she had a big osteochondrosarcoma on her back. And she lived at Safari Park. And she was, she, we all loved her. And she did eventually pass away, but this, this operation was successful. It gave her several more years because it doesn't metastasis in, um, in, in reptiles. Um, she's on my, the film's on my website. So king, the king cobras, there's something going on. When I've caught king cobras in the wild, there's something they're, going on behind those eyes. They're quite intelligent, aren't they, for a reptile? Yes, yeah. yes, they are. And we're beginning to think reticulated pythons might be as well. There's beginning to certain species because they'll stalk you and things like that. Um, that's my favorite snake. Um, my, my, my favorite genus is Toxic Acalamus, which is a, 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 their venomous snakes from New Guinea that I work on. And we describe several new species. They're not dangerous. Nobody's ever been bitten by them, but they're, they're burrowers or just in the leaf litter and they're not very well known. And most people overlook them. So that's my favorite snake genus. Favorite um, crocodile, crocodilian, is the American alligator. I know there's a lot oh, more okay. fantastical ones, but I just like American alligators. I always have. I just, that big mouth, it, look, it reminds me of the Shingo Indians with a plate in the, the lower lip. I mean, there's just something, you know, alligators are endearing, crocodiles aren't. <laughs> crocodiles can be mean. Yeah. Um, famous, favorite, favorite lizards, there's two. The monkey tail skink from the Solomon Islands mm. and the crocodile skink from New Guinea. Right. Um, the fav favorite um, favorite amphisbenian, which are worm lizards, is something called Bipes biporus that we found. Uh, we got one right at the southern tip of the Baja California Peninsula in Mexico. And how best to describe it? 
It's long and pink and annular. I think this it has is no Sicilian, not what they call it. It's not Sicilian, no, it's an alien. Okay, okay. It's got no hind legs, but it's got a couple of front legs that are really well formed. And it can okay. five, fing five fingers. And it's the weirdest looking thing. People in Mexico are frightened of, down in bar, they're frightened of them. They think if you sleep on the ground, it goes up your bottom and you can't get it out again. Well, you don't want that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not true. Um, favorite, favorite turtles too. Um, the Matamata in South America and alligator, uh, alligator snapping turtles in North yeah, America. they are pretty. And I do have some favorite amphibians and they're probably mostly Sicilians. Yeah. But I don't work as much on amphibians as no, I do on more, more reptiles for you. And I like tuataras as well, of course, but I've never never seen one in the wild. Have you? Oh, so maybe that's one if you, you know, I'm sure you'll get the chance at some point, but that'd be a good one. Because they're not a lizard, yeah. are they? They're their own. They're their own. No, 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 no. <laughs> there are the squamates, right, which are all snakes, lizards, and worm lizards. That's the squamata. Okay. And then there's the tuatara, which is the sister group to all of them. Oh, right. So it's completely... The, the rhinos, they're rhinocephalians, the beak heads. Um, they are very ancient. They were once found throughout the world. They disappeared from Asia, North America, Europe. There were even marine ones. They've gone. They survived longest in um, South America, but they were extinct. I can't remember, 100,000 years ago. They only now survive in New Zealand. And it really is an example of a... Uh, a living fossil, if you like, because it's the, the one species left of a whole. It, it looks like a a grey iguana, but nothing could be further from the truth. It's an extremely special animal. And New Zealand are so proud of it that they've, they've done tuatara stamps so many times. It is, it's like it, they're as proud of it as they are of their kakapo, the, 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 the parrot yeah. that walks everywhere. They always remind me of the, you know, the old um, Ray Harryhausen kind of stop motion dinosaurs. Those really t old, is it like 1 million BC? That's oh, what yeah. Victoria kind of reminds me of some of the uh, plastic dinosaurs out of that. Yeah, well, they, they, they live life in the slows at lane. They can live to be about 100. They're not sexually mature until they're at least 20. Um, you know, um, I can't remember off the top of my head. Just the eggs may take like 12 or 16 months to hatch. Or You know, they're, they're life in the slow lane, which yeah. is probably an advantage they don't burn out but they are they're now really only found on islands off the coast because um the, the maoris arrived in the equivalent of the 15th new zealand was <coughs> colonized by humans very late i mean australia was colonized quite early new guinea etc you know hundreds of thousands of years but i think the, the maoris arrived in new zealand about the 15th century and humans arrived um might have been 14th 14th 15th century and europeans arrived what 17th 18th century established and then brought in cats and dogs and rats and classic story yeah and all these invasives and you know the tuatara and the kakapo and this kuakakui this really weird giant gecko which is now extinct it's about two foot long there's only one specimen known it's in a museum in marseille you know that they they, they they they've not had to cope with anything like this no no. And so now they're mostly on islands, which are very, very guarded. And yeah, I'd love to go and see um, Tuataras. They'd, they'd be spectacular, wouldn't they? Well, look, it, it's been a pleasure chatting to you, Martin. I remember growing up in the 90s, you were one of my heroes, watching you on telly going all over the world with these reptiles. So any chance to, to have a waffle about reptiles is always uh, always good in my eyes. So thanks for coming on. 
Thank you very much. It's nice to catch up after so much time. That was Mark O'Shea. Now, one of the lovely things with this podcast is it's allowing me to reconnect with people that I haven't worked with and, and spoke to for years. And it's great to see that Mark is still busy as ever working on his reptiles and his passion absolutely shines through on the range of subjects that he works on. Now, next week, I've got Jack Badhams, a fellow Nottinghamshire lad. He's worked as a bird ringer and he currently works on Springwatch as a researcher. But we'll be talking about the negatives of non-native species and the possible positives of them as well. This has been the Bearded Tits podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.